Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the JEDcast, Dialogues with Changemakers. I am your host, the Vice Mayor of Claremont, Jed Liano, and the Chair of the Claremont Lincoln University MPA Advisory Council. With me today, as always, my co-host, Dr. Audrey Jordan. How are you? Hey, Jed. I'm doing really well and excited for this really special podcast we have today with our state treasurer. You know, for those of you at home, uh, really excited you're with us. We are interviewing today the California State Treasurer, Fiona Ma. So excited about this episode. There are so many ways we can go with this, so many different topics to cover, so many different areas of policy. But Audrey, I'd love to hear, what are you excited to hear about today? You know, Jed, our, our speaker today has such an extensive career and touches on so many policy areas, but I want to talk with her about that origin policy, housing policy in this country that really is the source of baked-in institutional racism and all the ways that she's tackling today, uh, addressing that problem through laws and regulations. You know, this is such an exciting episode because it highlights the outstanding roster that we have on Claremont Lincoln University's MPA Advisory Council. And in this podcast, we talk to all of them, and they're all outstanding leaders doing great things in their community. And in so many of those episodes, we talk about how to address a problem in your town, in your city, in your county. And what I'm so excited about is today we get to talk about how to fix something in your state with one of the persons who's doing it, um, a statewide elected official who, um, who needs no introduction. So for those of you at home, in your car, on the bus, on the train, at work, glad you're with us today. We have the 34th treasurer for the state of California. Fiona Ma. Treasurer Ma, how are you today? I am good, Jed. How are you? I am doing great. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today. And there's so many policy areas to talk about. Your experience working in so many different policies is really exciting. But before I get to that, I want to lay the foundation and let's talk about the origin story. How do you get into public service? What was your motivation? Was there a single issue, a story, something that occurred in your life that made you want to embark on a career in public service? Yes. So my parents were both born in China, left, moved to Hong Kong, met in Canada, and settled down in New York. So politics or running for student body president was never part of our priorities. As long as I got straight A's, I could do pretty much what I wanted, and I chose to do sports is pretty much what I focused on. I was on four sports in junior high and high school. And then after college, moved to San Francisco, started with one of the big eight accounting firms specializing in the real estate tax department. And then after five years, left to start my own practice at the age of 28 because there were no women or people of color in leadership positions. So as I'm out networking for clients, I became president of the Asian Business Association. Wow. Where that was the first time that I had to go and lobby the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, the mayor, went to Sacramento to testify on bills, got involved in the 1995 White House Conference on Small Business, and really started to understand the importance of being at the table, that politics is not a bad word per se, right? Politics is public service, but as an opportunity to represent more people and get more things done on the policy level, in the budget. And so I got very excited about it. And I also had mentors who would say, we need to get more involved. 
We need to get appointed to boards and commissions. As you know, you're on uh, a local board yourself. So we all went out and supported the mayor who was running at the time and we all got appointed. I was on the assessment appeals board and slowly I just started getting more involved, helping candidates do pro bono tax filings, started my own Westside Chinese Democratic Club, was involved with everything and campaigns and it's a long story, but it took eight years before I was able to run for my first office. And that's because my parents did not want me to leave accounting and go into <laughs> politics. So it took every couple of years, mom and dad, I think I really want to be, you know, an elected official, public service. And they would say, no, please don't do that. <laughs> we want you to go get your MBA. So I got my MBA. And then I said, mom and dad, I still want to run for office. Well, we'd like you to get married. Your younger brother's waiting. So I got married. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, you know, they moved to Vegas and I was able to run for office. But that's- uh, there you go. <laughs> nice. Well, Treasure Ma, that's a um, great story. I love that story because it basically shows that in trying to grow your own business, being a woman, being an entrepreneur, that opens your eyes to yes. the need for representation. And it takes that boots on the ground experience to realize the importance of having people elected who look like you and who speak your language language. Yeah. So um, we talk about small businesses as the backbone or the lifeline for all businesses. And so who is involved in a small business? A lot of them are minority, you know, first time immigrants coming to the U.S. because they can't be you know, teachers or doctors like they were in their home country. But it is so hard to run a business. There's a lot of agencies you have to go through. Then they all send notices Then if you get behind, then that becomes a problem for you. If you don't speak English as your first language, you're missing a lot. And even with all this federal stimulus that's coming from the federal government, not a lot has been going to small businesses. That's right. Because they just don't know. They don't have time to sit on the computer. It crashes. Who do they call? Nothing's in language. Website's not in language. No one to talk to. And so it's been a big problem. And so that's still my passion is helping small businesses. So during the last year, we created COVID resource guides that are updated in real time for small businesses, seniors, nonprofits, individuals, food access, and tax relief. And we've been a resource. We've done over 200 webinars to different communities, trying to let them know what's coming down the pike, what they should be prepared for, you know, whether they can access certain types of funding. So at least I feel like I've been trying to help small businesses, again, survive and thrive even through this pandemic. Treasure Ma, can I just tell you something before we move on to the next question? You know what I love about this interview? I feel like I'm talking to someone who matches my energy and exceeds it. <laughs> I know. Well, you and I are extroverts, so that's yes. what happens. We get like excited and when we see people, I'm like... Like, you you talk with your hands, and I love that. The expressions of nonverbal communication. So... Uh, Treasure Ma, let's get right into some issues because there's so many things we could talk about with you and we only have so much time. We really wanted to get to the hardest hitting issues because there are so many issues that our students and our faculty and our academic community want to hear about. So I know that you've done a lot of work around victims of domestic violence, specifically those who are incarcerated. You were chair of the Domestic Violence Select Committee 
And that gathered information on the issues and the challenges of incarcerated DV victims. You know, what did you learn from that process? What are the issues that they face? And I know you sponsored a bill, AB 593. How did that work to, to address some of those findings that you learned? Uh, let's see. So you probably can relate to this. I got involved in the DV movement back in 2000 when Claire Joyce Tempanko, living in the Richmond district in San Francisco, got murdered in front of her two young children by an ex-boyfriend who was convicted on five different felony counts, but the criminal justice systems were not talking. And so when I got on the board of supervisors, I tried to work on this project that would connect all of the systems so that people wouldn't fall through the cracks like that. And we right. never got it done because certain agencies did not want to comply. And so unfortunately, this it's called justice system never got finished. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to the legislature, I asked to chair the domestic violence select committee. And no one really wanted to really do that uh, in the past. And I was really committed to making this committee a robust committee, doing a lot of hearing, sponsoring and hearing bills, et cetera. So a couple of women approached me at an event. They gave me a DVD. The woman that was in jail for 26 years, Brenda Klubine, worked with this documentary uh, producer, Olivia Klaus. And they said, we'd really like you to watch this video. And I'm like, okay, well, what's the video about? And they said, well, it's about women who were convicted of life without parole who are in prison for life, but they did not have the opportunity to plead the battered women syndrome. And this kind of came later on in life, you know, through the years when women now could use that defense for protecting themselves. So it didn't apply retroactively. So did not, right. It did not. So people like my mother, my mother went through an abusive, had an abusive father, both mentally and, and physically if my grandmother or she was protecting each other from my grandfather and killed him, they would have been convicted of life without parole. So my two bills, AB 593 and 1593, very, very difficult to craft because there's never been another bill like this in any other states. Public defenders did not like the bill because now you're giving people another opportunity to get out. Law sure. enforcement was not really in support, but when you bring it to the level of it could be could have been your mom, it could have been your grandmother, and no fault of their own, but self-defense, right? Protecting their loved ones, protecting themselves. Right. They should have that second chance. And so Governor Brown did sign those bills, and at least 100 women are out of jail, either under my bill or because of the compassion of Governor Brown and now Governor Gavin Newsom, I think plus overcrowding of the jails, uh, being under a federal order also put a lot of pressure on the state to release those people that are not in immediate danger to society. And the women that are coming out, they spent 35 years in jail. Many of them have severe health problems. And why not allow them to get out and spend the rest of whatever life they have in some sort of, you know, dignity and hopefully some happiness. And so right. we created a new home called Home Free, finally on Treasure Island, thanks to Mayor London Breed donating a piece of property with six units on Treasure Island. 
We got everything donated, furniture and fixtures. We had donated services for landscaping and general contracting, carpentry, et cetera. And now these women, if they don't have someplace to go, don't have a family to go to, they can actually move in there. So we have four women living at our home free site in Treasure Island, and we're hoping to expand to other jurisdictions, LA, you know, Central Valley, Inland Empire, and we're going to have our first fundraiser coming up in September. So we're really, really excited about this. That is beautiful. Please make sure to include me in that September. In the story of the law that you walk us through, you started with the story of Brenda Kluba. Take me back to when you learned about this. You know, you're sitting there and they give you a DVD. Yep. Just they give, give me a DVD. Yeah. Give me the, the emotional reaction. What's going through your mind when you learn about her story and what are the first steps in your mind as a leader who's in a position to do something about it? What are the first steps that kind of click in your mind to what am I going to do here to solve this puzzle? Yeah, I mean, these women that were in jail, life without parole, they don't have a voice. They never thought that they would get out. So my you know, first thoughts were like, who are these people, right? They're not voters. You're never going to see them at your neighborhood coffee shop. Right. So who are these women? Number one, then after watching the video, I watched it with some of my folks in my office and we were all like, we need to do something. And we're like, okay, like, where do we even start? Like, we don't even understand the criminal justice system, the parole system, the probation system. And so we had to learn about all that. And then trying to run a bill to release women was going to be difficult because I also sat on the public safety committee for a couple of years. And it was just one of the toughest bills that I had to uh, work on. But one of my favorite and one of my most passionate and memorable and one that I actually see is working and changing people's lives every day. Because a lot of times we pass bills and it sounds good. Like I passed a bill to protect uh, babies from toxic toys in baby toys, but I don't know how many babies I've saved. I haven't, no baby has said, oh, because of your bill, now I am a healthy adult, right? But these women, you see and you feel and you know that it works. And there were so many times where we gave up and said, oh my God, we're not going to be able to do this. But we would keep calling and people would say, well, why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? And I just think the timing was right. Like I said, right? federal order, police overcrowding, you know, what are we going to do? We should be releasing certain low offenders, people that are not a dangerous society. So I think that that's what happened. And a governor, Governor Jerry Brown, right? Former priest wanted to release people from jail. And he was like, you get it to my desk, I will sign the bill. So that gave me extra incentive. And it took four years to get that bill in uh, onto his desk. But I see these women every day or I talk to them, they text me, they're happy. They're so great. I love that. I love they that. They don't take anything for granted every day. Yep. I mean, it's just uh, amazing. So- like the little things like eating a candy bar, like we went, Genevieve and I went to pick uh, one of the women up from uh, the prison and we were nervous because we thought we were, they were going to keep her because of COVID. And so I said, I'm going to go down personally. And Genevieve and I went down to pick her up and you should see like she was like, I haven't chewed gum in 35 years. Wow. Like, wow. I I just want to get 
a candy bar or, you know, she had pancakes and she was like, this is amazing, <laughs> right? <laughs> I love it. Treasure Mon, no one comes on my podcast without talking a healthy dose of housing. So let's talk about housing and affordable housing. Sure. And it's something that I know that you've been involved in a lot. In December of 2020, you announced some new regulations to streamline the financing of low-income housing, uh, also the allocation of additional bonds for low-income housing projects. So talk to me about what your office is doing on this issue and how you're trying to streamline the financing piece to affordable housing development. Yeah, so there's four agencies involved in affordable housing. Affordable housing, meaning 50% or less of average median income. So I, in the treasurer's office, oversee the financing pieces the bonds and the tax credits. So there's two sets of credits, 9% and 4%, and then the private activity tax exempt bonds. So I oversee that and the governor oversees the housing policy and creation side. So Office of Housing and Community Development and Cal HFA, which is the California Housing Financing Finance Agency. So together, it seems like it would be disjointed and it could be disjointed, right. but because the governor and I are working together, he set high goals of 3.5 million new homes by right. 2025, which is a BHAG uh, for sure, but at least he has set that goal. And right. AB 101 requires that we utilize our resources to the best we can in a competitive manner. The governor's given us more state low-income housing tax credits. The federal government has been giving us disaster tax credits. And so there's a lot of resources there. And for the first time, our bonds have been competitive for the first time in decades. And so we've had to streamline our regulations. We try to align definitions. We have a joint application for the first time under uh, under my administration. And we have, last year, we gave out more housing. We're going to produce more housing, low-income housing, than any other time in history. And we've, again, closely aligned with the governor's office. And they are working on their own streamlining and efficiency measures. But hopefully in you know, about two years, we will have one application for everyone. People are going to be able to align their funding sources at HCD better and then come to get the bonds and the tax credits at one time. Instead of right now, they're just cobbling all Mm -hmm. these different housing, you know, funding sources together. They'll be able to go to HCD. HCD will say, we'll give you this, this, this. You can take that over to SIDLAC TCAC and then we can fund it. And then they're going to be off to the races. So it's it's based on one application. Yes, yes, love one that. application, and it's it's coming, but it's probably going to be 2022. Love that. Uh, I'm going to throw it to my co-host, Dr. Jordan. Take it away. Wow. Treasurer Ma, sitting here listening to you, talking about the BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goal, many, many that you encounter, and trying to think, you know, of question that my MPA students would ponder in class. And so as I listen to you talk about the housing policy and knowing that combating systemic racism in all its forms stems from housing policy in this country, the GI Bill, redlining. And these are ways that historically our government at all levels 
perpetuated racism. So I'm smiling, listening to a solution like the one you talked about that addresses a need for low-income housing. So my question is, how are the regulations and bonds you've announced translating into meaningful actions to overcome patterns of segregation, discrimination, and to foster more inclusive communities free from those barriers that those old policies set in place? Yeah, so, you know, traditionally people of color have a hard time accessing capital, for example. And that means that we are not the ones that are running the banks or running the law firms or um, the developers. And there are not that many developers of color. And so this year or last year, we created a separate allocation, BIPOC allocation right. for black indigenous people of color. And this is the first time that they've gotten an allocation to compete in their own pool versus MWBE laws, you know how that uh, gets manipulated by having, you know, a non-minority have a 51% minority, but they're really not the controlling right. entity and we don't want that. So we really want the Black developers to be able to shine and not have to compete against the big guys because they just don't have the experience. They don't have the access to capital. So that's one thing we've done. Plus, I've changed uh, like the performance deposit. Before, when you submitted an application, you had to submit a $100,000 performance deposit, even if you don't know whether you're going to get the allocation. So I said, nope, if they get the application, then they have to submit the $100,000. Otherwise, you're a small developer. You're going to say, well, hmm, am I going to get it? Is it going to tie up my $100,000? When am I going to get it back? And then the more barriers you put to people yep. participating, the less they participate. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are some of the things that we have, you know, really changed and tried to encourage. Plus COVID, uh, because of COVID now, we have all of our Zoom meetings available. Whereas before, you pretty much had to show up in Sacramento at the committee hearing to testify and you didn't know what was going on. So I chaired 18 committees last year <laughs> and the Black Developers Forum they started coming after maybe like four or five, and then they were actively engaged. We put a couple of them on the working committee. We had an active stakeholder worker working committee. And so a couple of them did participate. And that's how we level the playing field is by more participation, more transparency, and cutting some of those barriers out so that other people can be successful in a system that is very complicated and not meant for the first timers to even join. I don't know how many people say, oh, I wanna build affordable housing. I wanna access the bonds and credits. How do I do that? And I go, girl or boy, <laughs> just, you just can't like jump in. I mean, yes. this is so sophisticated. I said, you need to, number one, we have trainings 101. You should start listening to our meetings mm. and you may have to partner or work for a firm so you understand how to do it because not everyone, as you know, can, can get through a very complicated system that's made complicated to keep a lot of people out. Wow. Treasurer Ma, thank you. And I, I don't wanna get off this housing topic because there's too much good stuff to talk about here. One of the areas of affordable housing, one of the biggest areas of need is our transitional age youth. And one of the ways that 
the housing pent up demand is manifest is on our community college campuses. I mean, these are students, predominantly students of color, a lot of first generation, a lot of first time college students from their family. And a lot of students at community colleges are lacking housing stability. Tell me what your office has been up to in dealing with that issue and how you're trying to address that. Yep. So our office is now embarking on the first housing, student housing project on a community college site, the Santa Rosa Community College. And we found out that a lot of developers did not want to get into this area because the rents are not stable, right? When you go to community college, how many of them can afford $500, $600, $800 a month, right? So the government, because we can take a little bit more risk, we are now trying to fill the niche and build more affordable housing on community college sites, which I believe is the place we need it, that they're the most vulnerable, they're sleeping in their cars, they're homeless, you know, they're single moms, but we need to do more. I'm also looking at a model where we can maybe bring older adults who are on fixed income and can afford, right, 300, 400, 500, to also live in the same buildings because this gives an opportunity for these older folks to either volunteer on campus, to take classes, maybe provide babysitting. Yeah. And then the students, the younger students could also help the older ones, maybe with mm-hmm. chores or, you know, just helping them just live. Right. Uh, and so I really like the intergenerational living model. I live with my dad and I live with my mom. She passed away two and a half years ago, but I can see how as people get older, their needs change, right? Their right. ability to do certain things change. And therefore having that next generation be there to help and vice versa, I think is a healthy model that I'd like to see more of. When it comes to foster youth, transitioning out of foster youth is awful, right? I'm glad that now, you know, they can maybe stay on or have insurance up until 25 years old. I sponsored a bill to allow free uh, community college entrance when you are a foster youth and you transition out, like you don't have to go and take a test and go to a counselor and try to figure out whether you need to get student loans or not. You should just be automatically enrolled. Um, Unfortunately, it didn't pass back then. And now we have free community college uh, for students. But, you know, we need to make it easier, especially for foster youth in our in our society. It's just not right. You know, housing advocacy, it's reaching a fever pitch. I mean, this is the issue that's kind of dominating headlines at state and local governments. Every contentious vote at a city council or in the legislature, oftentimes it's about housing. So there's a lot of people who are motivated now. And on this issue of advocating for affordable housing at community colleges, what can people do to engage? How can they help fight for this and promote this and help move this along? Well, I mean, you know, I'm I'm on social media a lot and we're always promoting all the things that we're doing, but obviously retweeting, talking about the need, Uh, Getting involved, if you go to a community college with land, please let us know, call us. We will have, you know, our folks engage directly because I don't think a lot of people know that this is a project that we are, or an area that we are embarking on now. And just talk about what the needs are because the squeaky wheel does get the grease in government. Like the governor is going to be allocating 100,000 new subsidized childcare slots. Okay. And 
that came about because the Legislative Women's Caucus made that our priority, is that we need more childcare slots and funding. And so that's kind of how it works. If you don't let us know that it's a priority, then we may never, you know, fund it or, you know, create policy around it. But I think all the stories about community college students living in their cars, homeless, on food stamps, standing in food bank lines really triggered in my mind that this is an area that we need to focus on. And I challenged my staff to figure this out and they did. Thank you. Thank you for that. So many things to get to. Let's move along to investment business opportunities for communities of color. Your bill 986, the equitable opportunity film tax credit was a response to losing some independent, diverse film production companies to the state of Georgia. Tell me about that effort to fight for that industry and to and to fight for some of those companies. Yeah, so here's another area, the big movie studios that don't have diverse leadership at the top, right? And so right. what happened? Many of the films have been going to uh, Georgia. Yeah. Tyler Perry said, hey, I'm going to create movie studios and we'll see who comes. And now lots of Californians have moved over to Georgia because he's giving opportunities for people of color, women and and others who haven't had access to the traditional Hollywood model here. Sure. We're trying to bring them back, kind of the Tyler Perry model, but making sure that These film tax credits are available for minorities, people of color in front of the camera and behind the camera. Because right now, the way our film tax credits are set up, there is a diversification or diversity clause in it, but it's really for workers. You know, who is working? I mean, are they CPAs? Are they janitors, right? Are they the uh, caterers? But they're not really the people that are going to benefit and make money from films, right? The actors or the, you know, the producers and the directors. And so that's what we're trying to do with this bill. You have a lot on your plate. Before I end this interview, first, tell the listeners where people can find you. And then we're going to close up with some stuff you're working on right now. Go ahead. Okay. Yes. So I have a dedicated email that we set up for COVID and that is askfiona at (laughs) treasure.ca.gov. Yes. (laughs) And it's, uh, we've, we've had over a thousand inquiries. Um, so anybody who needs assistance, information, can't get through, um, just need a little guidance, please email me. So that's the best way. And then, of course, we have a lot of information on our website, www.treasure.ca.gov, where you can find our resource guides and our newsletters. And of course, social media, I'm very active and you can reach me through social media as well. And thank you for making yourself so accessible. Before we let you go, the last thing I want to ask you is tell me something you're working on right now that you're really excited about. So this is the thing. When I talk with you, I can sense the excitement in your voice. I can sense the passion. And one of the things that I always notice is that when people are passionate about their work, it comes through. When we talk to you about some of the bills you've worked on, the policies you're working on, people get really excited and it's unmistakable. You can't fake it. Tell me something you're working on right now that you love, you're excited about, you wake up, you got some bounce in your step, you're pumped up, you're happy, you're ready to go forward. I got a lot of things, but you already covered some of my passion projects, (laughs) as you can see, but I will give you some more. I love 
problem solving. I love trying to figure out how we can be competitive, how we can keep jobs here in California. So one project I'm working on is bringing a high speed all electric train initially from Victorville to Las Vegas. And that'll be a 90 minute uh, trip that's gonna be privately funded. We are going to allocate bonds and then they're gonna go to the private sector to sell the bonds. But now they are gonna go also from Victorville down to Rancho Cucamonga to connect with the LA you know, Metro link. And then hopefully they will connect us to our California high-speed rail authority and perhaps run that train network because I don't think the state should be in the train operation business and the private sector could do it better. So that's my hope. And that's like a big huge job creator, cleaning the environment, getting people out of their cars, all electric, you know, California leading the way. I mean, it's just very, very exciting to be the first high-speed rail network in the country. Yet other countries have, their whole country is, you know, connected by high-speed rail. And here we're fighting, you know, here in the United States just to get one high-speed rail segment. I mean, that's, how far behind we are from other countries, but that is what's exciting me right now. I love it. It has been an awesome conversation for those of you listening at home. I hope you not only enjoyed the substance and the merit that we discussed, but I hope you absorbed in some of the passion and enthusiasm of the 34th state treasurer for the great state of California, the one and the only Fiona Ma. Treasurer Ma, thank you again for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Jed. And thank you, Ms. Jordan. Uh, thank you, Treasurer All right. Ma. And Audrey, you got something to reflect on you like about it? Wow, there was so much. There's but, so many rich pieces there. Yeah, two things in particular. One was, man, I mean, this woman is obviously a doer. Yeah. Oh, man, is she yeah. a doer. But it's a special kind of doer. She's yeah. a responsive to her constituents' doer. Yeah. Somebody brings an issue to her, she's like, we got to do something about that. And right, right. Relentless. And, you know, the story of the women in prison for life for defending themselves in domestic violence situations had taken four years. But four years and she got it done. Right, I right. was so impressed with that story. And then... Just, you know, as she closed, she was talking about her dream. Yeah. <laughs> this transportation system that connects all over California and other states. And I was so struck by how she connected all these dots. Transportation, work, economy, climate, inequities. She, she connected all of those dots and could see how pushing that dream accomplishes so much for so many people and the state of California. That's a leader. Yeah. You know, I have to tell you the first thing that you notice when you have a conversation with Fiona Ma is her infectious level of energy. She is so positive. When you talk with her, you feel like you're on the winning team. We're going to go march down the field. We're going to go score a touchdown right now. I think that there is an innate quality in leadership when you can inspire that kind of motivation and confidence in the people around you. And she undeniably has that. Um, When she talks about problems, she gets you excited to solve them with her. 
But more importantly, this is a woman who is handling some statewide issues and and dealing with some major macro level solutions, but she's not too busy to go pick up a woman who was just released from jail and take right. her to go get some candy, you know, to That's stay perfect. grounded like that, to to keep it real. Yeah. And and to just keep your feet on the ground and stay connected in that way. That was just an incredible conversation. And for for our students uh, listening and for everyone at home, I hope you found this conversation interesting. We certainly had a blast doing it. And thanks for being with us again. We'll see you next time on the Jedcast. <laughs>